So, um, so our opening thoughts, uh, hey, our opening thoughts today come from uh, Eugene Peterson, who, as I mentioned, translated the scripture uh, into a, tr- a modern translation called the Message, and he, and he also happens to be a Presbyterian. So he was a Presbyterian pastor for like thirty some odd years, and a Greek scholar as well. So and, and Hebrew. So he says, I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. And I thought that's kind of beautiful. And uh, then, of course, from Albert Einstein, imagination is more important than intelligence. And I think if you ever read anything about Einstein's work, um, you know, he was working in the imaginative, uh, even though, you know, we, we would think this is mathematics and quantum physics and all the rest of it. But, you know, he was doing things that no one had ever done before, uh, breaking ground that no one had ever even seen. Um, and to some extent, a lot of his work, we still don't completely understand. It still has not been um, you know, completely fleshed out. So it's beautiful to hear that. Um, anything can make us look. Only art can make us see. Archibald McLeish. So when you start thinking of Revelation not as, um, not as a way of transmitting information and a way to try to figure out something, a puzzle to be solved, um, then it kind of opens up your mind to be able to receive more of the text. Um, and uh, you know, it, it does expand our understanding of um, what is honestly unexplainable. right? Um, and this is my favorite, from one of my favorite theologians, G.K. Chesterton. He was a, a British theologian uh, uh, who, was product, who was Anglican at one point and then became Catholic. Um, but he's, he's got a lot of wonderful comments like this. Uh, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his commentators. Um, So, you know, basically, (laughs) the people who try to figure this out sometimes are are just about as crazy as John seems to be, right? So who was John? And so there's a big debate um, over this. um, And... You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to you know to wade into these debates. I mean, you know, in, in the end, does it you know, how much does it really does it really matter? Uh, maybe not that much, um, but it does help us to understand a little bit more about the context um, and also the timing of the book as well, like when was it written um, and so forth. So there is a debate um, over the beloved disciple. Um, so the debate uh, goes all the way back to uh, the 100s. Um, Justin Martyr, uh, we mentioned him last week, uh, and we also mentioned Irenaeus. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, was writing about 100 to 165, and he asserted that this was written by uh, the apostle, by the beloved disciple. So when we say the, so that's another way of, of talking about John, right? Um, so there's all kinds of there's all kinds of Johns um, in the Bible, right? And um, we're talking here about uh, John, uh, the beloved disciple. Now, why do we call him the beloved disciple? Where do we get that? From his from the gospel. Okay, so what is he called? And uh, he's not called the beloved disciple, but he's called the disciple what? Jesus, Jesus, loved, right? Um, Interestingly enough, 
Uh, he's called that in the gospel, and it's attributed to him. All right, so kind of interesting. But 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 you know there there seems to be um, you know a really deep connection between Jesus and and John. Uh, so John, the beloved disciple, um, also had a, had a brother named James. They were called the sons of thunder, um, the, the sons of Zebedee. Um, so this is a reflection on the probably the the. Uh, most likely the temperament of their father and his reputation uh, of being somebody who may have been, you know, kind of enthusiastic, effusive, you know, whatever. Um, they were fishermen, uh, James and John. John is always depicted as like the youngest uh, disciple. Um, and the reason why is because of Revelation, honestly. Um, because, uh, you know, the timing of Revelation is, is problematic for a lot of scholars uh, that try to figure out, you know, try to place John as the author. So if they're going to place the beloved disciple as the author, Revelation is written much later, and so therefore um, this disciple would have had to have been younger than the others, uh, you know, so to speak. Um, all, all of the other disciples were uh, martyred, um, uh, you know, in, in fantastic ways, right? Um, and except for John, uh, and, and according to tradition, uh, John was actually exiled. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. Um, so, so John, the beloved disciple, is um, you know sort of the main, the person that most people always assumed was the author. Um, so we'll we'll just kind of put him up there, and we'll come back to some other possibilities here in a second. So Justin Martyr uh, writing in 100 to 165 when he was doing his work. So I mean, we're we're talking, you know, 30, you know, like so like Jesus, um, uh, you know, is 33 when he when he dies, um, you know, give or take, you know, however many years of whatever we're talking about. I mean, you know, so I mean, this isn't very long, right? I mean, you know, Jerusalem falls in 70, so it's only 30 some odd years, 40 years after Jerusalem. Justin Martyr is a child and becomes, you know, so I mean, we're talking very close to the time. Um, you know, when all these things happen. Also, um, there was um, another person who believed that it was written by John, the beloved disciple, and that was Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus uh, was writing in 130 to 200. And here's the interesting thing about Irenaeus. Irenaeus uh, knew a guy by the name of Polycarp. Okay, so Polycarp was another church leader um, who was the generation before Irenaeus, and he studied, Irenaeus studied um, with Polycarp, and Polycarp knew John. So, like, Polycarp studied at the feet of the beloved disciple. And so this argument um, was used by those um, who primarily wanted the book to be included in the canon. Um, you know, that they wanted it to be a part of the canon. Um, and one of the reasons why um, books were included in the canon, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but I just want to touch on it, right? So one of the things, one of the, the reasons why books got into the Bible, have you ever wondered that? Like, why did, why did these books get in? Like, there was like 150 Gospels. I mean, there was a bunch of them. Um, there were all kinds of other prophetic books, like in the, in the New Testament, you know, vein. There was like prophetic books. There was like the... You know, there's the Apocalypse of Peter. I mean, there was all kinds of strange books. There's other books that were out there. 
um, I've got uh, volume. I've got two volumes that has all those books uh, in them, the ones that, that we have, right? Um, and so the, what they decided was that they have to have a criteria, right, that, to figure out what, what these books are in. So um, one way to figure it out is to say, first of all, it has to be apostolic. Like the book has to have an apostolic uh, origin. So um, what does that mean? Uh, what, what would you guess that that would mean? One of the apostles. Written by one of the apostles. Okay, written by one of the apostles. Well, by apostles, we mean um, one of the, the, the disciples, the 12, right? Or the 11, uh, which then became 12 when they voted uh, somebody back onto the island um, after uh, <laughs> Judas took himself off of it, right? So, so this is one of the criteria. Is it apostolic? Okay. Um, there's another criteria where they, they uh, it had to be helpful um, to the to it had to be that's, I know it's a bad way of saying it but that's exactly kind of how they meant it. It had to be helpful uh, to the church. Like yeah, not confusing. <laughs> and it had to be it had to be focused on being helpful in the church. And then there there had to be um, there had to be some sort of outside um, attestation, right? Like, a, like there was, you know, there was something that affirmed it. Um, some of it had to do with, and, and there's there's some more, but these are basically the main three. So that, but um, there had to be like some use of it, right? That it wasn't, it, it was, it was, uh, it was being affirmed. By its use and by its uh, by its attestation by many different, because um, I mean you got to think these these groups these Christian groups were all meeting all over the world and there was no internet there was no there's no way to to kind of figure out like okay here's all the things that we're going to agree on right I mean you're you know sometimes months away from communication from somebody who has authority unless they come in and travel uh, which is what Paul did right. And uh, what we believe that John did, the, the guy that is talking, the, the speaker in, the, in John, uh, in, uh, in Revelation. So they, they traveled from church to church, uh, preaching, teaching, being prophetic, making sure that they were getting the right doctrines and so forth. So um, a lot of times that, you know, the, <coughs> the gospels and the, the books and the stuff that they read, you know, they, they were, it became widely disseminated, right? So those are some of the things that they would... They would look to. Um, there were there were some really popular books uh, that um, never made it in, even though they might have these two criteria. They wouldn't have this one, right? So one of the big ones was uh, a book called *The Shepherd of Hermas*. And if you want to look it up and read it, you can. Um, it's just like a just like a you know uplifting. Moral kind of kind of book. It was super popular among the first century uh, church and Christians, uh, even later and later um, in the second, third centuries as well. So it just didn't make it in because it didn't have it didn't have an apostolic origin. Um, there is another criteria that it had. To, it could not have been like uh, the, the revelation of it, right? The, the re, uh, it had to be like revealed, like. By, oh, I don't know, like by, by a group, I think is the best sort of way to explain it. 
So a book that is based solely on a conversation that Jesus had with somebody was always put into, was always suspect, right? So Jesus pulls somebody aside. Hey, I'm going to have this conversation with just you, right? So most of the time um, when Jesus is having conversations with people in the text, there's always somebody else, right? When he goes when he goes around, there's always a couple of disciples with him. He takes at least two or three, right? Um, and in, in the the Jewish tradition, which you know Jesus lifted up, um, you needed to have um, at least two witnesses for something to be to be true. You can just accuse somebody of something, and if no one saw anything, if there was no other witness, um, then it was just your word against the other person's. So you were you were kind of messed up, right? Um, so Jesus, <laughs> here's how Jesus got around that. When he says, he goes, uh, he says, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm a witness, and my father is a witness. And then, and if that's not enough for you people, my works are a witness, you know, and then the Holy Spirit is a witness, right? So, you know, it's like all these, all this sort of stuff. So Jesus, you know, uh, speaks in the, tr the Trinitarian sort of language there. Um, but anyway, this is kind of, um, so, so this is why uh, these guys wanted John to write it, right? Because if John writes it, that means that it's apostolic. Now, <laughs> this might be debatable, yeah. <laughs> right? Helpful. Is it helpful? Well, I mean, if you're in the first century, it probably was, because you could understand it, right? I mean, it was, it was pretty easy to understand. But, you know, as we started to get farther and farther away from that context, people were having problems with it. You know, they were, it, was, it started to really, you know, become difficult. Um, so then, uh, in 264, uh, Dionysus of Alexandria, he's got a great Greek name, um, but Dionysus of Alexandria... Uh, asserted that it was not written by the same author as John <coughs> And then there was another guy in the second century as well um, who was a Roman presbyter, a um, leader. His name was Gaius. Um, he asserted that it was written by a, a famous heretic. So there was already people. So, so the reason why I'm telling you all this, so this, and the famous heretic's name was Corinthus. Um, which doesn't make any difference, but anyway. The reason why I'm telling you all this stuff is because <laughs> already, right, that early, people are debating this and are on all kinds of different sides of it, right? Because um, if it is not apostolic, then that means it doesn't belong in the canon, which is what these guys were essentially saying, the, the guys that were arguing against it. And, and the guy, uh, Gaius, was like, Basically, um, and I remember reading some of the stuff that he was writing about it, and he was like, um, listen, this stuff is, is nonsense, right? You know, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, there, there's, there's good stuff in it, yeah, but it's not, it's not helpful, and it's not apostolic, and it doesn't belong. It was, it was written, so he discredits it, right? The, the way that you make an argument in, in, the, in those early centuries was to discredit the origin. You know, and so if he can discredit the origin and say that it was written by a heretic um, and make that stick, uh, then you know it discredits the book. He was written 
He was writing sometime later, though, right? 264 uh, was Dionysus, and then uh, Gaius was also was, was also second century. So they have a, a good bit of distance, really. They have a good bit of distance between um, the origins of the book and because it was it was definitely written within the first century. Mm -hmm. So late first century, um, mid to late first century, depending on what your what your bent is. Okay, is when Revelation was written. <clears throat> okay, so um, I actually am going to read the very beginning. Um, so what does the text sort of tell us about this? Well, it's kind of interesting because um, the Greek that this was written in, um, the Bible is essentially written in what's known as uh, Koine Greek. Koine Greek. So it's not classic Greek, it's uh, Koine Greek, which is kind of like the, the Greek of the people. You know, classic Greek would be sort of like the difference between um, the way that um, the way that we sort of converse, I guess, the way that our, um, you know, like an everyday sort of level, um, uh, and as opposed to somebody who's a bit more refined in their language, you know, like they would have like they would be very, yeah, right. So, and even in even in societies like Britain, right? So in, in Britain. Britain, you've got people who have, are, have a very pronounced and, 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 you know, they're very, they enunciate everything very well, they're very proper and so forth. Um, and then you've got people from, like, the East End, you know, in London. And the same thing is true in America, right? You know, you've got people who are very proper in the way they speak. Um, and then, you know, you have people from, I don't know, where, where's that, where's this, where's the accent real hard here in Texas? I don't know. East Texas, so East End of London, East Texas. So, but yeah, um, and so, and for some of it, how many of y'all were raised, like you were you were born and raised in the South, in Texas or in the South, like you're, you're from, so like a lot of us, right? And so the funny thing is, is that when I ta start talking to some of my relatives uh, from South Carolina, or if I start talking to somebody who has a draw, I immediately began talking like them, right? I, I like slip right back into it. Sometimes when I'm preaching, it's, it happens, you know, like I'll, I, for most of it's for effect, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just an accident. You know? But, um, you know, so Koine Greek is that kind of language. It's like, you know, everyday language. Um, but this Koine Greek is messed up, okay? Um, because it fluctuates between, you know, kind of like, Koine Greek, which is like the normal language you'd be talking, you know, to somebody without without a without any slang, without any um, you know euphemisms, things like that. So uh, the prologue is where we get a lot of this, and so the scholars that have translated this had to work overtime to make this make sense. All right. So, but it, and it still is kind of weird. So if you look at Revelation one, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, okay? Yes, so, um, I'm blessed. So, so because this was the context, right? So, when you, when you were um, receiving this letter at one of the seven churches, uh, somebody would read it out loud. And generally, it might either be the person who wrote it or um, their proxy, right? The person that they sent with the letter in order to share. 
Um, blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because, very honestly, the time is near. One thing that you'll notice throughout the New Testament is that the time is always near. <laughs> the doomsday clock is always at, you know, 5 to midnight, right? Um, so here's, here's where it starts. Greetings and doxology. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Okay, here's where it gets crazy. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And you're saying, well, that doesn't sound crazy because in the, in the slang Greek, it's like, it's like this is the language of the street. He's saying, you know, at the, from, from the outset, he's like grace and peace to the is and the was and the shall be, right? I mean, he's like straight up, like in our context, I'd be straight up black preachering it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like with that emphasis that, it com that tells you that this comes from the ground up, right? He's using slang. In the, in the, ancient, in the Koine Greek, it is all over the place, right? It, it, there's, the, the grammar is jacked up. Uh, some of the words, the, the, it's hard to translate. And so, um, so this is interesting. Grace to you and peace from he that is and from he that was and from he the coming one. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting that that's how John begins his revelation, by, by just immediately doing something that's very level. So what do you think that he was trying to do with that? Like, why would he do that? Connect. He wanted to connect. So he's wanting to connect with them immediately, right off the bat. And he said, this, it's going to come to pass quickly, soon. Okay, so um, there's, an urgency, there's an urgency to his language. It also tells you a little bit about the people that he's writing to, doesn't it? You know, these are people that are not highborn for the most part. These are people that are not um, refined. These are people that are not at the top of the social pyramid within Roman culture. Um, now, they might have been all over, you know, the map in terms of their own particular house churches and people who were gathered there. But we know that it was a motley crew of people who were slaves, people who were free, Men, women, people of other races, um, you know, people who were Roman citizens, some who weren't. I mean, it was all over the place. So you've got a, a, a very diverse group of people, all of whom uh, understand the language of the street, the language of the day. You know, yeah. Seems to me it puts them in a completely different concept. Is, was, always will be. I mean, that's not a normal person. Right, he that is, and he that was, and he the coming one. Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting way to address Jesus, right? Because that's essentially what he's, what he's saying. Well, is he speaking for Jesus? He from, is. He says from. It, in this moment, he's speaking as himself. For Jesus. Yeah, he's speaking as himself at this okay. point. Because he starts, this is, the, um, this is the part that sounds a lot like a letter. So he's, he's speaking for himself. So he says, John, comma, yeah. to the seven churches 
and then he greets them. Um, and then he goes on to relate the vision a little bit later. But at this point, this is in his own voice. So at the very beginning, um, it's a prologue that just basically, now when was that written? You know, was it written for, for by the, the author, you know, to sort of add, or was it written by a scribe that added it in, you know, to sort of explain what this letter was all about? I mean, who knows? But there is a prologue that's, that's part of that that explains what you're about to read, and then you, get, you hear John's voice speaking um, after the prologue. So, I mean, it, it tells us a whole bunch just by the language, and, and uh, so that, that's very interesting. Um, and the themes are, the themes are kind of, I mean, he's very concerned with the present, um, but he's also letting people know that the time is short, right? So the time is short, so we have to, we have to do something now. Um, so, so we have that. There's, there's all the urgency. There's the language of the street. He's addressing churches that, um, for the most part, did not, really, uh, you know, did not really come into fruition until later in the first century. Um, and so uh, he doesn't even identify himself as an apostle. So that's the other part of it that's, that's kind of... It's, it's also of note, right? So in Paul's letters, um, Paul always announced himself, didn't he? Paul, comma, an apostle, right? That's, he was always wanting to make sure that everybody knew that he was apostle. Um, <clears throat> even though he was not part of the original 12, um, his claim was that he, because of his his calling, right? Um, people always say that it was a conversion that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. I don't think it was a conversion per se. I think he was redirected. He he always had had a calling in his life that he felt like that he needed to pursue. Um, there was this deep zeal for to serve God. Um, and there's that interesting thing where Paul encounters Jesus and then realizes that he's been serving in the wrong way, right? That he has been persecuting God. Um, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and was the Lord. That's right. He says, who are you, Lord? Right. Um, so Paul claims his uh, apostolic authority. Um, and so you go through most, a lot of the, the letters, and, and there is, there's always you know, something that indicates that, there, that this was created by an apostle. So there's, and, and that's not the case. I mean, I guess Hebrews, is, it's always... Uh, Hebrews is another book that's sort of up for grabs, um, you know, in terms of who wrote it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's strong linguistic evidence to suggest that it may have actually been written by a woman, which is pretty cool. Um, so at any rate, uh, and, and so ladies in the house, yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's something that's been debated over the last maybe 20, 25 years. Um, so anyway, um, the author of Revelation does not claim to be an apostle. He doesn't claim any authority, which would have been something that somebody who's distributing a cyclical letter probably would have done, right? Um, you know, that this is coming to you uh, from John, uh, the beloved disciple, the apostle, or something, right? Uh, but instead, uh, it just says John to the seven churches. And then a little bit later on, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So he calls himself a brother, um, a partner, um, 
The other place is a slave and also a prophet. Uh, the twelve apostles are mentioned kind of indirectly in the vision, but it is a closed circle, right, uh, that we're going to get to uh, as you read through it. Maybe you've already read it, but there's, you know, there's this idea of the twelve that are around uh, the twelve um, uh, you know, elders or whatever, um, and the twelve, they're mentioned in the vision, but it's a closed circle, and the revelator's on the outside of it. The revelator's not in it, as a, in the circle. Is this John not need to say he's John the Apostle? Because it's not his message. It's supposedly he is nothing more than a conduit for a message from Christ, and the authority for the message then comes from Christ. Unlike Paul, who has all these things he's got to sell to somebody. Yeah, and I think Paul... Um, Paul would argue, I think, that his whatever he had came from Jesus. But, but you know, I mean, it's, it's a fair point. He wouldn't quote Jesus unless supposedly he's quoting directly from the angel who's quoting directly True. from Christ. So that, and that would be an argument, that is, that is an argument that you could make for John being the author. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing at this point is I'm just kind of, I'm presenting it. So, so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that there's an argument that also could be made about Paul, and so and, and he quotes Jesus in various ways, and, and he, he talks about his conversion story, um, you know, as well. He relates that and how he received, you know, from what I've received from the Lord, right? When he when he talks about communion, um, what I received from the Lord, you know, and now give to you. So, um, John, you know, I mean, it's 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 an argument that you can make um, as well. Um, but, you know, you, when you start thinking through some of these things, you know, it wasn't quite as important for this particular author to establish his, if there was apostolic authority, it wasn't important for him to do that. You can debate why, uh, perhaps, which, you know, maybe it is John, that, and he's like, <laughs> I'll be danged if I'm going to roll out my credentials. I'm John, dadgummit, you know, so. Um, but anyway, uh, so he was writing to a group of churches which were all arranged in kind of a horseshoe circuit. Um, so if you can imagine, um, this kind of like the, the coast of Turkey, which is, this is a terrible, a terrible, so this is like, this is Turkey um, today, which would have been, you know, a whole bunch of other things in, in Roman times. But, so the, the churches were all kind of, you know, sort of like this, because they're all like dotted around the, you know, have any, have you guys ever gone to some of these places? Yeah. You guys have been, went to Ephesus? Yeah. I have a nice photo of Meredith and I at Ephesus in here in my slideshow here in a minute. All right, so, um, so yeah, let me see if this works. So here we got John, um, and then uh, this is kind of a weird. This is a uh, this is a woodcut that was made um, in the 15th century. I can't remember the guy's name. Ah, oh, it stinks. Uh, but anyway, he he did some of the most unbelievable. If you look up like uh, German woodcuts. Revelation, um, and then like maybe 15th century, I think, or something like that, uh, you, you'll see them all. So this, this is, uh, so he depicted like all these scenes in Revelation, try, you know, as part of the, you know, a way to teach them. Um, but anyway, so John is having this, is having a vision. Um, so he's writing to a group of churches that are all arranged in a horseshoe circuit and all within two days journey from the next. Okay, so it seems that John, whoever, whichever John it was, um, was functioning as uh, an, an itinerant prophet, um, who was, uh, which was a common figure in the early church. 
so th this is the other part of it. So like, you know, he's speaking prophetically, um, which, I mean, most of the, the epistles, most of the stories that we have in the, in the Gospels and so forth, there's the only person within those, those texts that ever spoke uh, with, an, with apocalyptic language was Jesus himself. Um, the, the, other, the other books all were pretty practical. You know, Paul's stuff was pretty practical about, you know, theology and, you know, who was Jesus and, you know, why, why Jesus' resurrection is important. What do you, how do you live as a church? You know, the book of James is all about living, um, you know, uh, together and uh, in community and how you, you know, how can you be the church, um, you know, in the world and so forth and so on. Hebrews was written uh, as a, a theological understanding of, you know, so you go, you go through all these things. And, but Jesus spoke ap, uh, in an apocalyptic language uh, on occasion as well. So he talked about how, you know, that, in, you know, there will come a day, there's going to, you know, the, the, the you know, he starts using the language, the day of the Lord kind of language, that the you know, moon will turn red and blah, 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 blah. So there's, there's stuff that he said. Um, but this stuff that we're talking about here, this, this apocalyptic language, um, was being disseminated by someone um, you know, who was kind of speaking prophetically in a way. Um, and so some scholars believe that, that he was indeed uh, a prophet, you know, and the prophet in like a functional sense. Uh, which was actually a, a position in the in the church. Um, it was like, you know, like a staff position, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word. Um, and in some churches, they still are, right? In the historically black churches, um, you know, they still have prophets. Um, in some charismatic churches, they, they will they will have a position of, of a prophet, um, and the prophet is there to keep the church faithful, you know, uh, to speak to speak truth, to speak. Uh, you know, hopeful images or images of, of dire, you know, sort of circumstances if we don't do certain things, right? So um, it's possible that, uh, that this was one of, one of those people, that this was a prophet that went and just made the circuit through all those different churches, uh, you know, kind of making sure that they were, they were on point. Paul struggles with a lot of these guys uh, throughout his career, guys like, like, not like this specifically, but guys like that who went around to the different churches. And these, the guys that Paul struggled with were the ones who went around saying, in order to be Christian, you have to be Jewish. You've got you to do all the Jewish stuff, right? And so Paul railed against that. Um, this person also mentions other, um, you know, sort of false uh, prophets and false teachers and so forth, um, and a female teacher uh, and a prophetess in Thyatira who he calls Jezebel. Um, you know, so he's, he's contending as well, like Paul did, um, against, you know, people who he believes are, are preaching and teaching wrong things, right? And, and so this book was a way of him kind of really laying it out for these churches. This is why you have to be faithful. This is why you have to do this. So... The interesting thing is that none of this gives us any conclusive answers <laughs> at all, does it? Um, you know, as, uh, as you were arguing just a little bit ago, I mean, there's, there's a way to argue, um, sometimes even on the same kind of idea, you can argue both sides of it uh, persuasively, that it could be John, the beloved disciple, or someone else. Um, yeah, go ahead. You know, it seems 
He did. And he specifically pointed out certain things in each church. He did. So, I mean, I don't know what that tells you about the writer, but... Well, it tells you a lot. Um, it tells you a lot. So, um, let's, let's kind of dig into that a little bit. All right, so this is Patmos, right? So, um, he was on the island of Patmos because, this is what he says, um, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so he was in exile. There's an argument that um, that he could have been uh, an elite kind of person, right? That he could have had some sort of status, um, which had kept him from really getting executed, but then got him um, exiled instead. <clears throat> that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good point. Um, you know, because subversive talk. Amongst some amongst people who were common folk, um, you know, there was no there was no one to bribe, there was no one to call a favor into. There was, I mean, you were done. You know, you were you were either stoned to death, crucified, you know, whatever, made a galley slave. I mean, there's there's like a whole bunch of stuff that could have happened to you. So, um, at any rate, um, he gets. Uh, he gets exiled to this horrible place. <laughs> now, I've been to Patmos, and it is flat beautiful. Um, it is flat beautiful. It is gorgeous. Um, but, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, do, I don't, I'm not sure if, there's, there was, if it was this one or maybe one of the other islands that we went to. But, you know, it's, water is scarce on these. I mean, it's mostly reservoirs and things like that. Um, and I'm pretty sure Patmos was one of those that, that got most of their water um, on ships that were brought in. Uh, and so, you know, it's not quite as... Of course, you know, when there's only like a few thousand people on the island uh, in the ancient world, you know, build big, huge reservoirs, it would last a long time when it, when it rained. Um, but at any rate, uh, he's exiled there. Um, it could be that. It could be that he was uh, kind of an elite person and, and then... You know, was also serving at this uh, capacity, um, but we do. Here's what we do know about this person, um, whoever they were, whether it was John the beloved disciple or, or John the revelator, John the prophet, or what or whatnot. Um, we know that he was a theologian. He thought deeply um, and theologically about what he was writing. Um, there's there's deep theology about uh, the lordship of Christ within the Book of Revelation, which is huge. Because that is, that is what we hold on to as, as followers of Jesus, right? And when I say the Lordship of Christ, what, am I, what do I mean? Because I saw a couple of puzzle books. His divine power. Okay. Okay, so the Lordship of Jesus has to do with divinity, right? So that's a, that's a huge part of it. Um, what else? What else is part of that? Judge. Okay. So judge, but in like a sense of like we want this kind of judge, right? The judge that's gonna gonna set things to right. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> that that the world will be will be set to right. So like a good judge. <laughs> you know, not like judgment, like you know. You're awful. You're awful. You're awful. You're yeah, rotten not, to the rotten yeah, to the core. Bad. Terrible human being. Okay. So, um, what else? 
has to do with lordship. This is a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. Isn't it? Right? So it has to do with two things, um, essentially. I mean, these are all part of it. It has to do with two things. Right? The first thing is um, that it's sal the salvific nature of Jesus, right? So an uh, easy way to do this is the old bumper sticker, Jesus saves, right? Um, you know, people used to have those back in the day. Y'all remember those anyone? Maybe so. Um, uh, so something came to my head that I'm going to just leave there in my head. All right, so um, salvific, right? And, and so now here's where Christians, you know, diverge, right? Because, um, you know, is it... There, there's a there's a continuum of universal, you know, there's a universal sal, salvific nature to Jesus, right? That's what, you know, there, there's one part of the continuum, and then there's a particular, right? So, when you say particular, what does that mean? Individual. Right? So, well, individuals, but like, there's there's some people that, that will that get the... You know, they, they get the, their ticket punched, and then there's there's some people that don't, right? So there's a continuum that exists between these two, um, and Christians kind of all fall all between these things, right? So you can be Christian and and still claim the lordship of Christ and that Jesus saves, and you can believe in universal. Salvation and and still be Christian. You have not preached heresy, right? Um, in the same way that you've not preached heresy to say that Jesus saves particularly that there's there are some that are saved and some that are not, right? So um, each of those things are you know have been affirmed by the church in various ways in various aspects of the church. There are things that are debated, right? But whatever you want to, whatever you want to think, and this is kind of where I fall on this, um, is that I I believe that all Christians should have universal hope. That every Christian should have universal hope. That your hope should be that all would be, that God would save all. Um, but <laughs> there's some that I would hope that, <laughs> that God would sort of leave out, right? Um, you know, and, we, and, and that's good because you know. That's why we're not in charge, right? Because there's there's lots of people that I would probably I'd be like you know I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna set my list God and these are all the people that you know can't be on there, um, and so uh, at any rate you know I think that all all Christians have universal hope. But that but again this is all comes back to this is the most important part of it is that Jesus is Jesus is salvific, right? So you might believe that through Jesus everyone gets in, um, or through Jesus that only a few get in, but you're still believing essentially. Um, that Jesus saves, which is the most important part of the Lordship of Christ. Um, and the second part of the Lordship of Christ has to do with allegiance. Okay? How are you living your life? Who is Lord of your life? This is, this is big, right? This is narrow. This is now down to my myself, right? So, in the ancient world, to declare that Jesus is Lord, that was punishable by death, right? 
um, because now you're butting up against um, Caesar. So Caesar is Lord in the ancient world. Which is really fascinating when you look at the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and then you if you go and you find uh, some contemporary proclamations that were made about uh, Caesar Augustus, um, and it's just pretty crazy. I mean, so about Caesar Augustus and his birthday, on the day of his birth, uh, there would be proclamations that would go out throughout the Roman Empire proclaiming, um, you know, today is an amazing day, right? For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Caesar, who is Lord, right? Same kind of language. Um, and so Luke chapter 2 turns all that upside down on its head, right? Um, and uh, in a very miraculous birth narrative, um, which uh, one-ups Caesar's miraculous birth narrative, um, and then proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and not uh, Caesar. Uh, and so people would actually say, you know, um, of Caesar Augustus, you know, that he's brought peace, right? There's peace on earth, goodwill to all of us, right? You know, because of Caesar. Uh, and so, so this is the, the narratives that are going on when you claim. And so Re Revelation is full of this lordship of Christ, um, that ultimately Jesus will be, be proclaimed lord um, of everything. Um, as Handel wrote in his Messiah, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and his Messiah. One of the great moments in the Hallelujah course. Um, and Handel's Messiah is uh, drawn from the book of Revelation as a, as a bunch of other awesome music as well, um, like Johnny Cash and... <laughs> yeah, Willie Nelson's got a whole bunch of good hymns that we, you know, we can probably listen to as well at some point. Um, okay, so uh, we know that he's a theologian. We know that he was a poet. Um, he, spoke, he wrote poetically. He spoke poetic, poetically. He was also a pastor. He had a pastor's heart for these churches. Um, his mind is saturated with the vision of God. Um, and this is, what, this is the work of theologians. Um, theologians keep us thinking about God, not just guessing. You know, that, and that's what he's doing. He's directing people to, to think about God, not just... This is a revelation. You know, this is meant to be understood. There's something about it. Um, that is meant to be received and, and internalized, right? Um, so he wants these people not to just guess about what's going to happen, but that they will actually think deeply about it. Um, and he's a poet because poets um, use words not to describe or to explain something, but to make something. And I always thought that was beautiful. Um, when you need... When you need... Um, someone to explain to you what is going on in your brain chemically and biologically when you are confronted by your beloved, right? Um, and, you know, these moments uh, where you, you met your beloved or whatever. Um, if, you want, if you want someone to be able to explain that to you, you can ask a, a, a neurologist, you can ask, you know, someone who can map the contours of the brain and they can figure out how to tell you exactly 
what's going on and why you feel the way you do and what chemicals and proteins and so forth are interacting and what synapses are charging and all those kinds of things. But if you want someone to explain how that makes you feel, you have to have a poet, right? The poet makes this. The poet makes the feeling. The poet makes the image and makes the point. I mean, so this is part of what he's doing is um, speaking in language that, um, that not only describes, but it creates. It creates imagination. It creates something within the heart and the soul of the reader. Um, and he's also a pastor in that he accompanies these people of faith um, during a time when they're in um, the worst part of any sort of journey, <laughs> which is the middle, right? <coughs> and and it's, it's, in this, it's in this part of the journey, the Christian journey, that, that John the Revelator is most concerned. The beginnings of things are awesome, aren't they? You know, I mean, the, the, the beginnings are amazing. Endings also have their own beauty. Um, there's, there can be something beautiful about the endings of things, um, especially when you know that maybe there's something on the other side of that that's going to begin something new, right? So it's in the, the beginnings and endings um, you know, are typically things that we know how to do. The hard part is the middle. You know, the hard part is the middle. And so that's what he's really concerned with, helping people within the middle of things um, as they're discerning, discerning patterns and they're, they're finding rhythms um, within the chaos that's all around them. You know, remember what we said last week? That one of the biggest issues that people have is trying to figure out how to make meaning out of a world that seems to have gone mad. Uh, I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? We're always trying to figure out the meaning of something, like something terrible has happened, what does it mean? You know, and so we go all over the place with that, right? Um, take, for example, the school shooting that just happened. You know, I just found it fascinating that it didn't take long before the conversation then shifted to bullying. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I thought to myself, you know, th there's a whole... There's a whole group of people that want it to be that, mm -hmm. you know, um, because then we can say, that's why that happened. Um, but maybe it's more complicated than that, right? You know, um, so, but that's why we do it, right? We're, we're trying to figure out, like, what is the, the root cause, right? You know, because you want to find somebody to either blame or some explanation for what really is horrific and, and and hard to explain. And sometimes when things are amazing and hard to explain, right? We want to figure that out too. Like how does that, you know, what was the meaning behind that? Was, you know, why did that wonderful thing happen? You know, so yeah. So in that particular case, what threw me about when you say bullying is that they were talking to some children there that said how much he was enjoying this happening. The man, the young boy. Who right, was that he enjoyed what he was doing. He was enjoying what he was doing. And for me, I can't even assimilate any reason that you could enjoy killing someone like that. So right. It's just, and so I look upon it as a fear for me of not understanding. Right. So this is exactly. 
um, you know, we, we want to figure that out. Like, how, what could drive a person to do that? What could drive, um, you know, people to fly planes into buildings? What, what, would, what would drive people, um, you know, to commit genocide, right? I mean, in, in the, I mean, the, you know, I used to always make fun of the, the History Channel. I just called it the Hitler Channel, right? Because, I mean, that, but, you know, that's true. Like, you go, if you go on Netflix and you look at, you know, at, at just about any given time, if you go and you look at the stuff that's trending, there's always some Nazi thing in there somewhere. <laughs> because we're still trying to figure out like, how the hell did that happen? Um, I mean, after all these years, it still, it still gets you, right? Like, how could people do that? Um, and so, this is what these people are dealing with. A world that has gone crazy around. How do we affix meaning to it? What's going on, right? And so, um, so this is what John is, is really concerned with, and this is what he's helping him. Okay, so when was it written? Okay, so here's some possible dates. Um, there was what's widely known as the year of four emperors. Let me see if I can get I got some of this. Okay, so here's the year of the four emperors. So you have um, Galba, Otho, Vitellus, and uh, Vespasian. Okay, so this is from the year 68 to 69. Um, so there was an assumption that the book had to have been written under a time of really intense persecution, which makes sense, right? I mean, because there's a lot of intensity. Um, as you read through it, you're, you'll begin to see, you know, there's a lot of intensity um, to this book, and then there are terrible things going on and terrible things happening. And plus, there are some people that you'll encounter um, that have died and were martyrs, and they're crying out for justice. Um, you know, so this is obviously a reality for the people that are that are reading this letter. So um, the assumption was that there was uh, that that the book had to be written in a time of intense persecution, and so um, since there was no widespread persecution under um, uh, Domitian, okay, um, the earlier date is preferable to a lot of people because the memory of Nero would have been kind of fresh at that point. Um, Nero, uh, with his awesome neck beard uh, here, um, was, uh, was probably one of the most infamous um, you know, uh, of all the Roman emperors. And so those guys uh, came after Nero. Um, so that was like one after the other, like one of them died, and it was like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that happened, and Vespasian was the last um, during that time period. And um, so Nero, uh, when he came to power, there was a lot of great hope um, that he was going to be a good emperor. In fact, he was extraordinarily magnanimous, and for all intents and purposes, was, um, you know, a solid emperor as emperors go in the Roman Empire. So... Um, he started to go crazy, um, you know. So whether it was mental illness or, you know, he just um, was a debauched human being, and you know, power, you know, got went to his head. I mean, who knows? Um, but you know, he he was um, was very ruthless. Sort of later on, um, there was the story that goes of you know that what Nero was doing when you know Rome had this incredible fire that you know that burned everything. 
Uh, and so he, he fell under a, a lot of criticism because of his sort of laissez-faire attitude to what was going on. Uh, so how many of you remember, like, from your humanities courses and so forth, and you know, what, was, what, was, what was it said that Nero was doing while Rome was burning? Fiddling. He was fiddling, right? We think he was fiddling. Well, there's an interesting way of translating that Latin word. Um, fiddling is one way. <laughs> and then there's another word that begins with F that uh, fornication. Fornication. You were thinking the other one, weren't you? That's true. So, um, so, in reality, what he was doing is he was floating on his barge on the on the Tiber, and he was having a big party, having an orgy, and so forth. And um, and so that was what was happening while Rome was burning. So he's like floating down the river, um, which they probably were like. Let's get the emperor to safety. You know, where's the safest place? It's the river. Let's put him on the river, put him on the barge. And he's sitting there, I'm bored. You know, bring me wine. And, you know, then everybody has a party. Um, and so <laughs> he's got a problem on his hands now because he's got lots of bad press. And Rome is a very fickle place, um, you know, and which is why the whole idea of, you know, bread and circuses, um, you know, came to be. Like, that's all you need to keep the masses under control is bread and circuses. You give them free bread. Give them free entertainment. We got it, right? Um, it wasn't quite that simple, but you know it did work for some cases. So at any rate, um, Nero uh, decides that he needs a scapegoat um, and to deflect attention. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, isn't it great that politicians don't do that stuff anymore? That we've kind of moved <laughs> all beyond. <laughs> Pay no attention to the, you know, what's happening over here. You know, meanwhile, right? So. Um, Nero decides that the Christians are to blame. That's the group. Um, and he picks them because they're an easy target. You know, they're already kind of suspicious, you know, suspicious kind of people anyway. Um, you know, they don't live up to family values, according to Roman traditions. Um, they're in a new religion that is weird. Um, people drink blood and eat flesh. Um, you know, there's, there's all this stuff that they, you know. Anyway, uh, he blames them and then begins a, some persecution. It was, it was pretty horrible. Um, and he was widely known as a despotic, debauched, violent person. So a lot of the stories that, you know, that, that are circulated about what Nero did, like you know, um, setting people on fire to light his garden parties and so forth, um, you know, all the, all, a lot of the stories about the you know, Christians who were um, you know, executed and stuff in the, in the Colosseums uh, around the Roman Empire, you know, we're under Nero. And so the memories of Nero would have been fresh during that time. Now, why is that important? Well, remember what I said last week. Um, you're, and some of you may have read that part already, where he says, you know, woe, woe, you know, like, let him without the understanding, right, the old King James, let, let you know, so be, be on, you know, on your guard here. I'm about to tell you that this person I'm talking about has a number, and his number is 666. So Nero's name basically... Is, you know, aligns with those numbers, 666. And, and so he's using that. And so that's an argument to be made that this was indeed um, a pretty good date for the, the writing. 68, 69. 68, 69, prior. So Vespasian was the emperor when, when uh, um, uh, Jerusalem was sacked. Yeah. I'm not getting what you're saying about Nero's name is aligned with um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it, but essentially what it is is that, you know, his, there, there, there were numbers that were assigned to each letter in the, the alphabet, in the Latin alphabet, and so they, 
they've added up um, in a sort of convoluted way would add up to be 666. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was trying to say, and I, I, believe, I believe this, I mean, he was trying to say, this is, you know I'm talking about Nero, right? You know, so he's bringing up the ghost of Nero in a way that, you know, so he's basically saying there's always a Nero, there's always a despotic leader, there's always, you know, this kind of thing going on. Um, okay, so that's an argument for that, which is a pretty good argument, right? Um, so there was also an argument that it, um, that it was written during the time of Trajan, uh, which is in 98 to 117. Um, so the assumption here is that it couldn't have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is what a lot of people believe, that this was sort of predicting in a way or kind of alluding to Jerusalem being destroyed. Um, and since official persecution occurred during the reign of Trajan, that this date must be one of those that could be a possible date. Less, you know, kind of less, uh, has less oomph maybe than the, the first one. You say it does not mention the destruction of Jerusalem? That, no, that, that the assumption that the scholars, some scholars believe that, that it, because it was alluding to something coming, right, um, in the first one, that it was that 68, 69, that was, you know, that was when it probably was written. But then the other people assumed, the other scholars assumed that it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem because then now everything is all messed up. And so there were, the, the book is reflecting that new reality of Jerusalem gone, the temple gone. You know, Christianity essentially is now scattered uh, and, you know, dominated by Gentiles, essentially. So it completely transformed it. Uh, okay, so another possible uh, date is between 88 and 96. Um, and this is the Flavian period with T Vespasian, uh, Titus, and Domitian. Um, a time of peace and prosperity for the empire and a golden age. Now there was a certain amount of persecution under, um, under Domitian. We'll talk about this. Is, uh, these are some of the, these are some of the, uh, the cities here. And we'll, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, I thought I had a picture of Domitian. I may, have, I may have one of um, So uh, Domitian, there was a certain amount of persecution that was under his reign, but um, a lot of people believe that he really didn't sanction it. So it wasn't like Nero, um, who basically blamed the Christians and they targeted them, you know, so it came from above, right? Um, in Domitian's reign, Domitian definitely encouraged uh, cultic worship of the emperor. So he was definitely down with people worshiping him and encouraged uh, people to do so. Not by decree, um, because that would have been gauche, right? To say, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're having to declare every, that everyone has to worship you as a god, um, then maybe you're not a god, right? Mm. Maybe you're not so divine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so the idea is then that people will want to worship. Like there, it comes from the people. Then this desire to worship. You are a god. You know. Well, well, well I think you're right. So Domitian um, encouraged this, right? 
And so I think we'll see it when we get to some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about with, uh, um, with uh, Ephesus, which is right here. Okay? Um, Ephesus had a huge, huge statue. Still, there's still a, a head, um, I believe, of Domitian, um, which it may be on here as well. Um, but at any rate, uh, the persecution, where would, so if the emperor is not basically sanctioning persecution, where would you think that the persecution of Christians is coming from? Local level. The local level, right? They're neighbors, right? Um, you know, it's, it's like right then and there, you know? So what typically, the, the kinds of things that caused uh, people to get persecuted um, were, were things like sedition, when you were accused of sedition, and undermining the authority, uh, the, the hierarchical authority of the Roman Empire, um, you know, so that and that was, and lots of people got accused of sedition, you know, all the time. Um, if you, you know, committed a, a crime of some kind, I mean, of course, you know, that would get you into trouble. Um, <coughs> but you know, people were always suspicious of of those who, you know, worshipped differently, um, and didn't sort of go along and celebrate all of the great holidays that everybody else was celebrating. The national holidays, right? So if you didn't celebrate the national holiday um, that celebrated whatever, you know, the Caesar's birthday or, you know, Caesar's mother's birthday or whatever the heck, right? Um, whatever was sort of contributing to the, the cult of the emperor, if you didn't celebrate those, then you were, you were under suspicion right away. And so Christians who were proclaiming Jesus as Lord had a difficult time sometimes engaging in those things. <laughs> So Paul really did a lot of work helping them to understand that they could indeed be in relationship with other people um, and, you know, still maintain their integrity, you know, as a Christian. So he was working really hard for them to be all things to all people. Figure it out. You know, be a good citizen. Be a good, uh, you know, citizen of, of your community without... <laughs> betraying your overall allegiance to Jesus, but be a good citizen. You know, so Paul is always trying to do those things. But again, it causes problems. The other thing that causes problems is economic issues. So anytime this, that people begin to be impacted economically, right? So if there's a group of, of Christians who are coming together, they're sharing their goods, they're doing things kind of internally, um, you know, that's a criticism that often gets leveled at, at our Jewish brothers and sisters, Right? Um, and, and that was one of the things that in Germany and, and a lot of, of Europe, um, that was what drove anti-Semitism was their economic sort of prosperity, um, you know, amongst themselves. You know, they were very insulated um, because of their faith and because of their traditions and so forth. So Christians, you know, typically ended up, you know, kind of on the wrong side of the coin with those as well. One of the really dramatic examples of that happens with uh, Paul um, when... Um, he gets mad finally <laughs> at um, this young woman who's a fortune teller, and she keeps coming up to him, and you know is like, and you know there's a, a spirit within her, right, that speaks to Paul and is like ridiculing him and saying things, and finally he just has enough, and he casts the the, the spirit out, uh, and she can no longer tell the future, and um, so then that causes a huge a huge uproar. Um, so you know there's. There's all kinds of stuff that, you know, kind of connects that. But anyway, um, so some people believe that, that, that this is a distinct possibility for it. And I, I, I mean, if I had to choose, I mean, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of tossing it up between the first one and this one. Um, because there is a certain amount of 
calling out that John does to these people uh, because of a comfortable lifestyle. We were just talking about that a little bit ago. A comfortable lifestyle um, rather than simply in, encouraging them in persecution. So there's some persecution that's going on, but there's also some of them that are comfortable, right? Um, and, and, and we'll see that in just a little bit. Nero does loom large, of course, um, but he's kind of a, a boogeyman um, just from the past. Now, his suicide, uh, he, he committed suicide. His suicide uh, sparked a period of unrest and then civil war that was terrible, right? There was a whole bunch of upheaval. So his memory, right? What? So we are still fascinated, right, by the Hitler channel, okay? Um, how many years ago was that now? People, that, people with math, People with math, help, help a brother out. 75 or 80 years. Okay, 75 or 80 years. Okay, so let's take a look at this. If it's 88 and 96, and um, Nero is happening around 63, 64, right? That's kind of at the height of that. I mean, we're talking 30 years. You know, I mean, that's not even... What is that? 30 years is like 1980-something. I think I hit my 35, 35th anniversary of graduating from high school. So, um, But I mean, to me, that didn't seem that long ago, right? You know, I mean, for some of y'all, you know, I asked somebody, I've, got, I've graduated 50 years ago, and it doesn't feel like it. I'm like, I know! Um, you know, so those kind of things, I mean, we, we remember a lot of that, you know, pretty well. And we remember this, the, the violence and the upheaval of the 60s you know, we remember all those kinds of things. We, you know, we, we hold on to those memories, and we're fascinated by them, and sometimes worried about it. You know, because when we start to see signs of some of those things again happening in culture, we're like, oh, you, know, you know, what I mean, we've seen that before. You know, so this is essentially. Sorry, that was not coming from anybody I knew. I told Meredith that I was teaching not to text me. Um, <laughs> morning. I don't want any like lovey-dovey text. Text <laughs> Okay, so um, so you can see why people would still be concerned about this idea of another Nero, right? So, I mean, it it's 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 arguable, right? It's an arguable thing that that it could be those possibilities. Um, so here's what we're gonna get. That it's that the thing that we were talking about, the number sixty-six. It's a, a gematria. Um, which is, you know, just assigning numbers uh, to things. And so um, there was a clear echo of a myth during the Civil War after his death that he actually didn't die. That, um, that you know, he was, had been resurrected. Because um, that was their fear. You know, this... Escaped to Argentina. Yeah, he escaped to Argentina. There, you know, there was that movie, The Boys from the Boys, Boys from Brazil, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, that is exactly right. So it's interesting, right? This is the kind of stuff that that people were still dealing with. So John is commenting on the character of the emperor and the worship of the imperial cult, imperial cult, regardless of the emperor. So again, it comes back to what I was saying before. There's always an emperor. There's always, uh, you know, somebody demanding your worship. Um, and we, we, we have the same thing, right? There's, there's and I'm not going to get political, okay, but, you know, our, I mean, our president is, is a very proud individual, you know, um, regardless of whether you support him or not. 
Um, you know, he's, he's a very proud individual. And there are lots of politicians who are very proud as well. There are lots of you know, public figures um, that um, you know, they, they have a certain amount of, uh, they have a need perhaps to, to have that, that ego fed. Um, and so in this case, you know, that was something that eventually led to horrible destruction and civil war and all kinds of things that people were remembering. Right? And so you know, the, John the Revelator is saying, you're always going to have these people. right? They're always going to be around. But this is the one that I'm tying it back to, that guy, that horrible, <laughs> stinking butthead, right? Um, and so here's another argument for this particular era, that the cities that are mentioned do not appear in any Christian writings anywhere. In all the 150 Gospels, all the other contemporary stuff that was written, first century material, they do not appear anywhere before 70 AD. Now... What does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it could mean that uh, those churches did not exist until after the fall of Jerusalem, and maybe that was one of the things that contributed uh, to those churches being founded. Um, that, uh, you know, and, and would there be enough time between 70 and, you know, 20-something, you know, 25-something years? Um you know, absolutely, for those churches to be founded and going and so forth. So they weren't mentioned before, and so if you start looking back and you say, well, you know, it could have been written in 68 to 69, that one sort of year there um, before the fall of Jerusalem, you know, that's a pretty good argument uh, for the fact that it may have been written later. Now, is it, is it a, a conclusive argument? No. Um, and big question is, why does this matter? <laughs> Why is Leon spending so much time on when it was written? Okay, so knowing when, it helps us understand the exact context. Okay? Because remember what we're doing, right? We're doing that thing when I got to the end of all that stuff and I said, well, here's how we're going to read it. And you go, well, duh. Of course, that's how I read the Bible. And I'm like, well, all those lists of things that I told you as people, how the people used to interpret, you know, their, the way that they interpreted Revelation, that's how, I mean, that's just one small part, right? Lots of people use different um, means to interpret uh, the Bible. Um, and so ours is we're using what, and for those of you who weren't here, um, our approach is, his, is the is just, I mean, and I'm, I'm, this is all I'm doing is, is like a Captain Obvious thing, right? So it's historical contemporary, right? So what we're doing is we're we're learning about the context because the context um, speaks to us um, as to how we can apply it in our own contemporary setting. So if you ignore the context and just read it. You know, as, as, as though it's like happening now, um, it does violence to the whole thing and can really send you down some bad roads, which is why we have so many crazy interpretations of Revelation. If all, if all you looked at was the historical part of it, then it's just nice and fascinating and, you know, it's just the work of, it's, the exer it's an exercise of a, of a historical critic, um, essentially. Um, but, you know, it has to kind of have those both, both of those. So that's what we're doing. And this helps us to do that better. 
right? Nod your heads. It does, right? Because um, if you know when, if you know when it was written, then you are able to really and truly uh, understand the socio-political issues, the economic and religious issues, historical context helps us to better understand what John is trying to say uh, to these seven churches. Right? So there are there are factors that um, that are that differ from one emperor to the next. And so we, we need to kind of understand that. So um, you know, this is what we're going to try to do. We're going we're gonna to favor, because I'm teaching, we're going to favor that this last one is probably the one that, that within which it was written. That's the one we're going to favor. The 88 and 96. The later one, yeah. Uh, no, the, the Flavian period with uh, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. The 88 to 96. Yep. Did he write this when he was on Patmos or after he was released? Yes, I think I think I think it would have probably been uh, a both and kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, and, I'm, and again, this is all supposition, so we don't know. Um, the tradition would say that he wrote it there. The tradition would have him writing it there. Um, and it's likely that he may have written, you know, quite a bit of it there, um, and maybe refined it later on. You know, just did editing and so forth. Who knows? Um, but the tradition, the you know, the historic church tradition has him having the vision there in the cave, um, where you can go now, and it's a it's a um, a chapel, and um, there's a monastery that's that's farther up on the on the mountain. Um, I, I can't I, I can't go back now. I can, but okay, I'll, I'll wait. I'll do it. Oh, there's us. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I think I think this is where it is right up in here, if I'm not mistaken, where the monastery is. So yeah. down just a little bit lower down in here somewhere yeah. um, is the is a cave is the cave and. Um, this is all this is all uh, Greek Orthodox, by the way. So all Greek Greek Orthodox churches. So um, the the monastery is quite large and uh, and and fairly beautiful. I mean, it's you know in, in the way that, that the white beautiful white buildings of Greek gods are beautiful. Um, the cave, though, is is really kind of interesting and mysterious. And um, it's just and it's one of those things where you you wonder like. Is this a holy place because something happened here, or because of the people who believed that something happened here? Um, and then you come to the conclusion after a few moments, I don't really care. <laughs> it's a holy place, and um, you know you you can see in the cave where the the John the Revelator was lying on the on the cave. You know that's the belief that this is where he he had the vision. Um, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Like how quickly these places really did become um, venerated, right? They became um, holy places. Okay, so let's move forward. There's the four emperors, there's Nero, and then there's the seven churches. Okay, so... John, if, if this sure. later date, 
John was still alive at that point? Well, then, yeah, then that's kind of stretching things a little. Okay, so there's two ways that you could you could do that. You could then say that John was like super old, um, or you could just assume then that it was written by someone who wasn't John. So I'm I'm kind of showing my hand at that point mm -hmm. by saying that you know I I. I, even though I see the arguments for all these, I favor this era, and I also favor that this was not written by the beloved disciple. <clears throat> that this was written by somebody else. The beloved disciple was a fisherman, and so why would he be ex uh, exiled instead of executed? Good point. Excellent point. And what um, was the date again? The date? This, this was um, 88 to 96, so somewhere in that, in that time frame. Okay, so who was it written to? Uh, I got 30 minutes. Okay, so let's, let's start moving. Um, okay, so there were seven cities of the Roman province of Asia or Asia Minor um, uh, in Turkey along the, Aege the Aegean Sea. Um, and this was a Roman postal circuit. Okay, so you can kind of see the, the, the circuit here, right? So you've got Ephesus. Um, who's right here in the middle. And that's Leon and Meredith. And Meredith was blonde, by, by the way, then. And I was much thinner. <laughs> and I had a goatee as well. Um, so this is the library at ancient Ephesus. Um, and uh, I think, yes, this is, uh, this is the goddess of fertility, uh, Diana or Artemis. Um, so this is where the silversmiths, um, so this is kind of funny. You can still buy these, by the way. Um, I tried to buy one, and Meredith was like, she wouldn't allow me. I was like, I want to have this. I want to take it back to my office, because I was like actually fascinated. She was like, you are not buying that and taking it back to the office. That's evil. That's, there's something evil about it, you know? Um, and I was like, dude, come on. You know, I need to use this for like sermon illustrations and stuff. She was like, you will. Anyway, so it was like an argument. So I didn't buy one. But you, you, know, you could buy silver ones, but they had silver-plated ones, and I thought that was kind of fun to like buy a silver, you know, like a silver-plated Diana of the Ephesians, right, or Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, but anyway, that was the, um, uh, it was a vibrant commercial center. It was the largest city in the era, in the area. Um, I mean, it was, it, it was definitely uh, a place um, where there was a lot of culture, there was a lot of um, <clears throat> cosmopolitan kind of kind of atmosphere. Uh, it was a great library there. I mean, you can see the remains of the library behind Meredith and I. That um, this particular um, shrine was was a, was enormous. I mean, it was it was vast. Uh, oh, this is Domitian. So this thing it doesn't do it justice. It's like the size of. I mean, it, it's literally like. I mean, it would fill up the whole front of this room. I mean, it's enormous. It was a huge statue that was made to Domitian. Wow. So the city of Ephesus uh, um, kind of sold itself to Rome by uh, creating these statues of Domitian and his family. And then, uh, of course, they had the huge uh, shrine to uh, Artemis, uh, Diana, the known, I guess, in Greek mythology, uh, also as the goddess of the hunt. Um, but, uh, you know, also as a goddess of fertility. So it, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a debauched kind of atmosphere around the, as you can imagine, around the goddess of fertility shrine. 
uh, with uh, all kinds of uh, prostitution and so forth. Um, you know, it's a pretty, pretty crazy place. But there was also you know, lots of interesting things as well. Is it the and, same Ephesus that Paul wrote to? Uh, it is. It is. It's also the city that, according to tradition, where John, the beloved disciple, um, actually uh, eventually brought Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus, um, outside the city of Ephesus. There's um, it's kind of up in the hills, beautiful, beautiful area, uh, and that is where apparently, according to tradition, that's where she was. She he put her up in that place as a, and, and her house was there. So now, of course, it's a, a vast shrine. Not a vast shrine, but it's a shrine and with a vast line <laughs> to get in it. <laughs> and so did you guys go to that one you went? Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. One of the fascinating things about that shrine was the number of, uh, like all along, like sort of the walls outside of it, um, the prayers um, that people put in, just amazing of all languages, all, I mean, it just really gives you like a, a sense of, the, the rich diversity of our faith. You know, it's really cool. So, um, then you've got, uh, let's see, so this is, uh, let's see, this is Dionysus. So this is um, Dionysus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so this is one of the coins. So the, you know, this is what they found. They found this in Ephesus as well. Um, and then we have Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna was the birthplace of Homer, uh, so it was kind of famous because of that. You guys know who Homer is, right? That's the great uh, Greek poet. Uh, and so this is Smyrna. And then Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was known for its temple to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Uh, and then uh, we also have um, Thyatira. So these are ruins of Thyatira. Ruins of Sardis. Um, and then uh, ruins of Philadelphia. And then last but not least, uh, the most sort of talked about church, at least um, within my particular context uh, within which I grew up, um, and I think in a lot of evangelical conservative sort of uh, churches, uh, Laodicea is a church that's, that's used as an example quite a bit uh, within preaching. And I've heard some really, I mean, I remember growing up, I heard some really excellent sermons um, on, um, on the seven churches. I think it was, we had, a, we had somebody that came one time, I can't remember, it was a long time ago. But it always stuck in my head, you know, the, the, they did a whole sermon, this guy did a whole series on the, on the seven churches. But Laodicea was the one that nobody wanted to be. They, they looked at it as church ages, actually. Yeah, well, that's true. One was the, that know, is the true. early church, one was the, you know, and, and the reason why they did that had to do with the dispensationalism yeah. and it had to do with the sort of timing of everything, right? Um, so that was a, so seeing these particular churches not as actual churches but as ages of the church um, then becomes a way to argue uh, for Revelation being viewed as a, um, you know, like this is leading to something and this is now when we can start figuring it out. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, I was just thinking no, no, back no. to this date. Uh, it's not far-fetched to think that it was John, because let's say he was 20 years old when Jesus was crucified, and this is, say, 88, so 58 years uh, mm -hmm. later makes him, you know, roughly the age of a lot of folks in our church. And so, he was no longer, he, 
He was no longer a fisherman. He was one of the most prominent figures in an up-and-coming religion. And so that may also... It could be. I mean, it's, it, like I said, it, it's, you know, there, an argument can be made for, for either one. I just favor the second one. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I can totally see, the middle one, I don't favor at all. I don't think that, I can totally see where people can make the argument for earlier. Um, I don't, again, okay, so here's the, here's the thing. That argument is, is not a modern argument. This thing that we're talking about, about when it was written, I mean, we're talking about it because it's important to us to figure out when it was written so that we can at least understand more about the context. But the argument about, about who wrote it, right, is not a, a modern argument. It's, this is a, this is an, uh, a first century argument that continues to be made, um, but for different reasons, right? Um, so, you know, it, it's, it would, as far as an intellectual exercise, it's, 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 it's cool to be able to think about it as possibly being written by the beloved disciple, and, and that's totally fine, right? But when it becomes something that it's like it has to be, then you're back basically doing this, this first century thing, or even on up through uh, the fifth century, where they were still having the same argument about who wrote it, because they were trying to figure out whether it was apostolic or not, because whether it was going to take into the, the scriptures. So the reason why it gets argued now, essentially, um, has to do with dispensationalism, dispensational stuff, timelines, and also um, a desire, I think, um, to connect it uh, closer to to uh, to Jesus, right? And so this, right? So to be able to say, kind of quite, you know, like, okay, this is this is a good, you know, being able to connect it to John, and then, you know, John sort of in his proximity to Jesus. That's actually not a bad way to, to, to sort of think about it, right? But, it, but it's, it's an argument that really doesn't make any difference in the end. Yeah, so. So I'm going to wait until the end to see if I have an answer. Okay. But, but you raised the question for me. Sure. So if I look at the things that are required to be, for a book to be placed in, in the New Testament, the first is in question, right? Right. The second one's helpful to the church. Still trying to figure that out, right? Well, yeah. Outside, it... outside at the, uh, what was it? Outside at a station. Of, like, at a station. So, like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot right. of people that are right. that are yeah. living this. Up. Yeah. Revealed group. So I'm, I'm, was... I'm not seeing. My question is, how did it get in the New Testament? How did this get in the New Testament? Yeah. That's a really <laughs> awesome question that we're gonna explore. So it didn't happen until like 600 and change. Because this stuff was being disputed, right? So I think that. Um, th so do do I do I have a dog in the? F I mean, honestly, I don't have a dog in the fight about whether I. I just tend to believe based on my understanding of kind of when it was written. I, I'm I'm assuming that John was probably dead by then, um, but maybe he wasn't. You know, it, but it, it that matters less to me than the timing of it. Um, who wrote it matters less to me because I don't believe in the dispensational stuff, which that matters to the that matters to some people because they want to they want to be able to, to map 
Revelation as a map that leads them to a place and a time and signs and stuff that kind of help us understand when all the things are going to happen. Um, so that's one reason. And then there's other reasons that are kind of like, which, I mean, because I know my, so I know my dad, and I know that he's not a dispensationalist guy, so that other desire comes, I'm assuming, from a place where you want to be able to connect it in terms of proximity to, to Jesus, right? You know, so that there's, there's a, and so that's a pretty, that's a pretty good reason to, to want to make that argument that it was John. Um, if you're making it because you want to make it fit your timeline, that's, that's disingenuous and it does violence to the text and to the argument. But if you're trying to make it because you, you have a desire to connect it closer to Jesus, that's pretty cool. I can, I can get down with that. Unfortunately, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, but um, that doesn't mean that I'm right. I mean, I, I just, I, I kind of feel like I have to fall, you know, if I'm going to fall down or, or fall in one area, that's kind of what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with one that I think Probably, but you can you can debate it on your own, and you, you know you can make your own decisions about that. There's plenty of arguments to go around, right? Uh, really great scholars that have spilled ink on John the beloved disciple being the person, and there is a beauty in that. I mean, there is. Um, so anyway, because um, John was said to have been uh, boiled, like boiled alive, you know, like like he was he was boiled in oil, you know, like. Um, and so it was disfigured as a result. Um, okay, so each of these churches in these cities, uh, they were struggling with issues of persecution, um, assimilation, and complacency. So these are the three things that, that John the Revelator picks up. Persecution, assimilation, and complacency. Uh, who is this written to? Um... Persecution in that, you know, Smyrna is mentioned specifically as having to deal with uh, persecution, prison, and even execution of some of the believers. So these Christians, the ones who have experienced persecution, how do you think that they would view the image of a seven-headed beast rising out of the sea to persecute the faithful? Like that. <laughs> they would be screaming, just like those kids, right? So they would have seen it as Rome, right? There's seven... There's seven mystical hills that surround Rome. You know, I mean, that, and that's, you know, even to this day, uh, though it's hard to see them now, you know, but that was the, you know, Rome was surrounded by seven hills. Um, and so this beast that rises out of the sea. Uh, so emperor worship began to grow during this Flavian period, the one that I, that I talked about. Um, there was, uh, there is an argument, there is some arguments that have been made that Domitian uh, commanded um, that there would be some kind of worship um, of, the, of the cult of the emperor. I, I don't know if I, I completely agree with that based on some of the stuff that I've been reading over the past couple of years, um, but he didn't stop it. So Domitian was in that time period. Um, some people argue that, that that was appalling to most Romans the idea of worshiping the emperor. But um, in some of these cities, like Ephesus, I mean, it was it was your civic duty, right? Because um, if you became a city that... So here's, here's a really interesting part about that, right? If you were a city that became favored by the Roman emperor because of something that you did to win that favor, um, what is the best possible thing that you think you could get? Money. 
Lower taxes. Lower taxes. Or no taxes. Wow. Right. So, um, you know, like... Uh, right, 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 right. So, yeah, like, like, so we make a statue. Like, so in our community, it's like, it's like here in the Oak Hill community, we erect a statue of, you know, the mayor or, you know, Governor Abbott or whoever. Um, and then, you know, they, they were, like, so pleased that they gave us tax-exempt status. Um, so that's kind of what happened. Um, so some people believe that uh, as Domitian began to grow in, like, his, his megalomania, which really, um, you know, was fed by these things going on, um, that his paranoia grew, and so he began to persecute uh, anybody that he uh, thought was disloyal to the empire uh, and to the emperor. And so uh, John could have been, you know, really warning these churches, essentially, uh, about the persecution that is to come. So um, the other thing that he talks about is assimilation. So I, I believe that assimilation, um, and we'll, we'll get to this in a moment. Um, assimilation is, uh, and actually this, this is a painting of uh, what John describes. When you read about the seven churches, um, their seven churches are described as, as lamp stands. There's a lamp for each one of the churches. Um, and then there's the, the Son of Man, um, they're, you know, sort of among them. So there's even a threat at some point, you know, like, I will remove your, your lamp stand. You know, you'll be, you'll be removed if, unless you, you know, do what, what you need to do. Okay, so um, what I think that John is really, really concerned with more than anything else, I mean, he acknowledges persecution, he acknowledges complacency, which is also something that he's, he, you know, he, it bothers him. Christians have become complacent and haven't they don't they don't have a sense of urgency, you know, about about what's to come. Uh, the, but the big issue that he deals with more than anything else, I believe, and what is really at the heart of what he's doing with this book is assimilation. So he doesn't want them to become too enamored with the culture around them. Um, how do believers remain true to their faith when they're interacting locally with people who want them to conform? So the issue of sacrificing <coughs> or eating food that has been sacrificed to Roman or Greek gods was a huge issue. Um, so how could Christians participate in these banquets and participate in these feasts and festivities and all this, um, you know, and, and not betray, you know, their uh, beliefs, right? So... When the Council of Jerusalem happened, when uh, Peter and Paul and uh, J James, the brother of Jesus, and a whole bunch of these other people in Acts like 15, I think. Um, at any rate, uh, this is like later in the church, right? So this is like the church has been going for a while. And so they're debating what to do about these Gentiles that are receiving the Holy Spirit and, you know, becoming Christians. Um, you know, what do we do? Because they're not, they're not becoming Jewish, and yet they're exhibiting signs of the Holy Spirit. So eventually, after all is said and done, James, the brother of Jesus, says, um, we ought not make this harder on them than it should be. Right? Why, why, are, we doing, why are we making it so hard for them to, to do this? So he says, just do two things. Um, don't eat uh, meat that's been strangled, which is like a shorthand for, like, you know, 
like so uh, idol sacrifice. Okay, and uh, you know just don't fornicate. Sexual sin, you know, so don't don't do naughty things. <clears throat> okay, so abstain from sexual sin and and idol sacrifice. So. I mean, these are two things that really are connected to the the, um, the shrines and the temples of the day. So um, there are also things that, you know, to a certain extent kind of happen uh, when you're having a big festivity in ancient Rome. You know, you're going to eat, you know, meat that has been part of the sacrificial system, you know, because... That's how the temples made money. They made money through gifts and, and offerings and so forth. Um, and they made money through the, prost the prostitutes um, that worked at the temples. Um, but they also made money off of meat. So if you're bringing your animal to be sacrificed, um, it's not like that you were you know, able to kind of watch the whole process, right? I mean, the, the temple, just like, in the, just like in the temple, Herod's temple in Jesus' day, um, you know, they were priests. They, their job was, they were butchers. I mean, they were straight up, they knew how to butcher every animal well. And so only parts of the animal would then be used um, to be put in a sacrifice, and the rest of it would then uh, get sold. You know, so it happened in uh, Roman culture as well. So um, that's, they made a lot of money off of it. So everybody, I mean, you go to, you go to your butcher, um, how do you know whether you're, Meat was from the, you know, you're, you're like, <laughs> it was the, it was the, it was the beginning of the local, uh, the local craze, the local food craze, right? You know, was this, was this meat locally strangled, or was it <laughs> strangled in a in a temple somewhere? Um, <laughs> right? I would really like to know where my food is coming from, and so, you know, so. Um, so social gatherings were often at temples, and attendance brought honor to the local god or goddess. And so Christians were invited to these gatherings. If they were invited, they could they would face a dilemma of alienating friends, business associates, family members. And so um, a lot of them just went, ah, who cares, you know? Um, and so even though that's kind of a you know kind of a small thing. Um, you know, it's the stuff that comes after, right? It's the, the assimilation into the whole culture. You know, buying into this idea of, um, you know, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace that comes through the expense of, of others, right? Um, that you know, there's nothing that, that happens just because people willingly give up their, their city or their, their country or whatever. You know, these, the Romans went in and took it. And then, you know, you became, you either became part of the Roman Empire or they would sack your city and build a new one and put Romans in it. And that's, in fact, what happened at uh, Sepphoris um, in a city that was in Galilee. Uh, right before Jesus was born, it was sacked and uh, there was a ton of people were crucified and then they razed the city and rebuilt it in a, a, as a Roman city. It was full of Jewish elite, but also, you know, um, it, was, it was very Roman city. So that's, that's what they would do. Um, so a lot of people would assimilate. 
you know, they would just give up their, their values, give up their traditions, you know, in terms of their Christian faith and so forth. And so John is really concerned about this. He doesn't want them to lose um, what is particular about being a Christian in a culture that um, really continues to proclaim Caesar as Lord. Um, so the last thing that he really talked to him about is complacency. So Laodicea is probably the one that he really hits the, the hardest. Um, Laodicea was, uh, they had a thriving Roman economy, there was trade, there was great roads, uh, commerce, local markets were expanding into international markets, there was a lot of people making a lot of money. It was a prosperous place, and so, you know, in that particular context, you know, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats, so lots of people, even, you know, people that were maybe on the lower part of the, the social strata had more than maybe other people in other places, and so some of those people probably were among the Christians. Um, and so they weren't being persecuted. They didn't have a care in the world, right? Um, they were happy to practice the Christian faith, essentially, as long as it didn't cost them too much, which is why John says, um, I wish that you were hot or cold rather than lukewarm, because you're lukewarm. I feel like I need to throw up, I th- you know, I'm going to throw up my mouth. I'll throw you out of my mouth, right? I'll spit you out of my mouth. So... Um, you know, so he's, he's concerned about all that stuff. So um, what can we take away from all this? Well, um, this is a, a letter and a, and, a, and a message for all churches in all time. It really is. Um, and a lot of scholars believe this, right? This comes to the historical contemporary kind of idea um, that, uh, and some scholars take it, you know, like that this is a message for all churches, but there is a specific context, uh, obviously, and that's kind of how we're reading it, um, that, that this is for them, it was for them, but it's also for us, right? Because there's lessons in that, you know, for us not to get too comfortable. Um, you know, there are places in the world where, you know, being a Christian will cost you. You know, and um, my friend Ken uh, travels to India quite a bit, um, you know, and I know that there's a romantic sort of notion about India, and um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, he's trying to get me to go, and, and I just keep telling him, like, you know, Ken, God is not calling me to India. Um, because, I mean, maybe God is, I'm just ignoring it. But, but, uh, but he, he, before he told me all this, he told me all the stories. He says, yeah, I get sick every time I go. And, and he said, like, a smile on his face. I was like, why are you smiling? Um, but anyway, uh, there's so many unbelievable people there. Um, and, there's, and so there's this romantic sort of notion about in, you know, India. And I know that there's incredible poverty and all kinds of... But, you know, we have, we have a lot of these things in our head, like the Taj Mahal and all the, all the temples. And, the, you know, we see these beautiful pictures of people who've, you know, gone and done pilgrimages there and they found themselves and so forth. And, you know, it's like really, really cool. Gandhi, you know, and all that. But there are areas of India that are, that are quite um, hostile... Uh, towards uh, people of other religions. And, and in particular, in this case, in Christians, the, the guy that we um, know has had his house burned down like twice. Um, so it's hard to be a Christian in some places. You know, in some places, it's almost impossible. Um, but yet, it continues to thrive. The persecuted church around the world um, thrives. In China, there are probably more Christians um, there than you know, any other country in the world, except for us. Um, and maybe even more. Than, than us. Uh, we just don't know. But, you know, the missionaries all left China and the church exploded. Um, you know, kind of interestingly enough. So, um, for them, right, think about 
think about their, so you read, the, read about the church at Smyrna, read that, and then think about those churches that are under persecution around the world, and then read Laodicea. <laughs> and you're like, hmm, that sounds a lot like us, right? You know, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable. Um, so I love this photo here, or this, this picture here, um, because it, it really does represent what is happening in the text. Christ is not seen apart from the church in the text. He's seen among it. Like, he's, he's in the midst of it. Um, he says, write to the seven churches, right, to, to John. But, you know, these are, this is the church in all places and all times, and Christ is, is at the center of it. Christ is the head of the church. Um, all these churches have a location. They have a geography. They have a political context. And so what John is essentially saying with this, with this image um, of Jesus, this vision that he's had, um, but apart from Christ, these churches... Um, they would still have all those things, but they would not have an identity. So he's drawing them back to their identity. Your identity is in Christ. Your loyalty is to Christ. Jesus is Lord, right? That we just talked about. Um, the Schofield Bible um, did a spiritual reading of the seven ages of the church, which is what you were talking about. Um, so the Schofield Bible, and we, we talked about that last week. Remember the guy that went to England because he... Um, he heard about a woman, or a young woman that had a vision about Jesus taking the church sort of away, and uh, he became fascinated by that, began to explore it. It didn't go over well in England, but it did go over in, the Amer in America, and then a guy named Schofield created a Bible that had a commentary, and that commentary um, outlined all of these things that eventually led to uh, stories about rapture and the tribulation, um, Hal Lindsey, <coughs> the late great planet Earth, all that stuff that I talked about last week, plus they left behind book series with uh, the Tim LaHaye and, and Jerry Jenkins wrote. Um, so there are readers who are reading this who feel threatened, and there's readers even today that feel threatened, um, like people that are being persecuted. And this letter can give them, and this part of the book can give them encouragement uh, to keep the faith when things are not going well. Um, they also show them that the word pictures that he paints of the beasts and the dragons and so forth and so on, um, that this is, there's a local thing going on, but, he, but John always, so John is always sort of doing this thing, right? There is a local, there's a, there's a point here uh, within which John is sort of writing, but then there's, there's all this, sort of this stuff that's taken place um, outside of this point, right? Um, you know, that, that's it's sort of beyond it, right? And the cosmos, right? So this is, there's a cosmos, so that there's a, um, you know, so we have like the, the world here, and there, there's things happening here in sort of our reality, and then there's something happening outside of our reality. Um, that there's a, there's a battle that's going on. There's a, there's a struggle. There's a thing that's happening uh, beyond us. Uh, and so, um, even though we might be struggling locally, right, we can take heart that there's something bigger going on um, that we are a part of, and that that bigger thing is going to eventually end in, in, in victory, right, that Jesus will be proclaimed Lord and all. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it feels as though we are, we're struggling and there's no hope 
in the midst of whatever we're struggling with. But this book helps us to understand that um, the future ultimately belongs to God. And that, you know, Jesus is Lord, right? Is, is, is gonna, it ends great. Um, the whole thing ends well. So it also speaks to readers who are, comp- are, are tempted to compromise. That a lot of times it's not expedient to maintain your integrity, the integrity of your faith. I see that happening now a lot um, in our culture on, as, as people in political, in, in terms of political <clears throat> terms, um, are, are all vying for sort of the moral high ground um, of who is controlling the Christian narrative. You know, and it's kind of fascinating. So you've got, um, and I'm going to, we'll end really quickly here. But you've got, um, you know, you've got people on the, sort of the, the left, let's just do a continuum. So you've got people on the left and on the right, you know, and there's this struggle sort of takes place between them, you know, and then you've got this idea that there's uh, morality that they're struggling over, and each side has arguments for why they're, um, you know, they're, they're claiming this moral high ground. And even, even let's break it down, that among them there are, it's, it's a Christian argument, right? So there are Christians on, on these, these sides that are arguing from a Christian point of view why their particular, you know, idea is, is correct. And all of them, all of them, in this context, when it comes to the politi- you know, with, with, to politics, they're they're not they're not relying on on God essentially uh, to you know to sort of be the arbiter. I mean, they're they're really and truly their their audience are politicians, right? The audience are the politicians. Um, I recently read that uh, you know when Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, was the one that proclaimed, that had made the proclamation um, about putting the words under God in the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. And so he did so during a time when, um, you know, we were struggling against uh, communists, you know, com- the, the threat of communism, and the idea of communism as, a, as godless, right? And so this was a way um, for us to, to affirm our differences between you know, these, the atheist sort of, you know, regime of, of communism as opposed to, um, you know, this sort of uh, the Judeo-Christian roots of our, our particular, you know, democracy, right? Um, but the interesting thing that Dwight D. Eisenhower did was he said uh, essentially that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what your faith is, right, um, as long as you believe in God. Right? That's, our, that's at the heart of it. I'm paraphrasing his speech, but that's essentially what he said. That we're a nation that believes in God, whatever that means in particular faith that you practice. Right. The interesting thing about that now is um, <coughs> that you know, it, it really does, it, you know, politicians, when, they, when, they, uh, um, when they're running for office, it's almost like they have, you know, for the most part, they have to sort of establish their Christian cred. Yeah. You know? Um, and so we're we're sort of relying on this idea of politicians as the, and we're so and essentially we're still saying Caesar is Lord. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything comes down to, to you know because well, and, and what happens is Christians on both sides 
are sometimes quite willing to sacrifice their understanding that Jesus is Lord just to get whoever they want to get elected, elected. Um, and as long as that continues, we're going to be in a mess. Right. Yeah. So if, imagine if Christians were like, wait a minute, we're not going to play anymore. You know, we're going to vote for we're going to vote for whoever um, actually lives up to what Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it would it would mess me up. Yeah. So I mean, imagine if you just said, I don't care what their what their what party. I mean, boy, I tell you, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Because then it would be a whole bunch of Christians finally saying. So instead of saying. The, the idea is, well, Christians vote, you know, in the event, you know, this idea of evangelical block, right, that votes all Republican. Um, you know, what we're discovering is that that's not entirely the case, right, that there's lots of Christians who don't vote just one particular party. Um, you know, but, you know, there's that temptation, isn't it, right, to be, to, to uh, compromise, right? And so that's what, that's kind of a modern sort of, um, you know, Illustration of what Paul or you know, John is really talking about. And the last thing, and this is, then I'll end with it, that yeah, he wants to address readers who are comfortable. Um, so he doesn't want them to to despair. You know, like the whole it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, and there's, I always love that story because you can either take it as like. You know, oh, well, what Jesus was talking about was there was a particular part of a gate um, on any city that was like a, there was a big gate, and then there was a small gate, and that's the small gate. The small gate was known as the eye of the needle, and the only thing that you can really take through the small gate is like yourself. Like, you can't take your camel, you can't take your stuff. You have to put all that stuff aside, and you have to walk through the gate, um, and it just has to be you. So you're just, you know, none of your stuff matters. You're just walking through the gate. That's what that means, Right. But what if he actually meant that, right? <laughs> what if Jesus actually meant the thing that he said, you know? So we want to we want to parse some of the stuff that Jesus said down to where it's manageable because I'm like, yeah, but see, I, I may not have the camel, but I could really stuff my robe full of coins and, you know, and then I would be all set. Um, so he's not wanting him to despair, but he wants him to be engaged. He wants him to be engaged. Um, Virgil, uh, one of the Roman poets, he wrote, on the fortune of the Romans, They're to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquer, conquered, and battle down the proud. That was their ethos. Rome was celebrated as a world power that brought tremendous improvements to humankind. Um, I'm not advocating that you watch the movie, although if you do, um, we'll, we'll, sit, we'll sit down and we can quote it together. But Life of Brian um, is a Monty Python movie. <laughs> Um, and there's a whole section in there where the, these guys are complaining about the Romans. What have the Romans ever done for us? And then they commence to actually listing all the things the Romans did. You know, <laughs> public help, <laughs> roads, the aqueduct. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and so, you know, there was this sort of side of things, right, that were very patriotic. And, and there was a, an inscription. Uh, about Augustus' birthday, that this was the beginning of good news for the whole world, a gospel, right? But there's another side to that, obviously. There's exploitive commerce, plundering conquered peoples, slavery excess, conspicuous consumption, preoccupation with war and weapons. I mean, all those things were all part of, Roman, of Rome's 
um, eventual downfall as it, as it imploded from within. And so uh, John is essentially, pro he's projecting this. He's like, it's going to happen. Do you want to sign on to that? Or do you want to be on the winning team, right? Do you want to be with Jesus or do you want to be with the, the whore of Babylon, right? Essentially is, is what he's saying. So, yeah. Um, all right, that's it. Next week, um, we're going to keep moving and we're going to dig a little deeper into more of the text and some of the imagery, I think. I think that's where we're headed. Um, so that should be fun. Any last, any last words? All right, awesome. If, um, um, I'll make sure that the study guides get sent out to everybody. Um, if, you, if you didn't get the email that I sent out today, see me after class. I'll make sure you get added, and then you'll have the lecture from last week as well. Um, let me just give you a blessing. Go in peace, uh, and may the God of peace cover you in all of his grace and mercy and love. Have a wonderful night in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.